Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. Today's report will present Israel's latest blatant war bluster, along with Turkey's, and even some news about how Russia plans to attack the United States. The war chess pieces are being moved into position in places where one would expect them, and in places where positioning is not so expected. Also, the last part of this report comes with a surprise, at least to me, a direct order from Yahweh to you through me. Oh yeah, and listen for details of Trump's peace plan that has not been revealed yet, but really has been revealed, if you know what to look for. The Israel press knows what to look for, do you? And they are announcing what is in the plan. First up, the Jordan option. The Jordan Valley is now an official issue and platform for the Israeli elections. Both far-right and center candidates are using it to garner votes for a win in the March elections. Left-wing MKs say using the Jordan Valley as an election ploy eliminates any chance for democracy and peace. The candidates apparently forgot there is life after the campaign, they said. The pathetic attempt to gather a few votes is not worth the future destruction of all of us, said Joint List Chief Ayman O'Day, Palestinian Hadash Party leader. The election campaign officially kicked off this week, allowing Benny Gantz of Kahol Levon, that's blue and white, and Benjamin Netanyahu of Likud, otherwise known as either Consolidation or Unity, to begin announcing their platforms, and both of them announced they intend to annex the Jordan Valley and the West Bank. Netanyahu promised to impose Israeli sovereignty on the Jordan Valley and northern Dead Sea, then pledged to annex all Israeli towns in Judea and Samaria without exception. Gantz said he would work to advance Israel's annexation rather, of the Jordan Valley. Netanyahu and Gantz both hope President Donald Trump will release his peace plan now before the election. Both candidates were in favor of the annexation in the prior campaign, so this is nothing new. But the Times of Israel reported on this in a slightly different way, saying Gantz vows to annex the Jordan Valley in coordination with the international community. You see, Netanyahu is pinning his hopes on the United States and President Trump's support, while Gantz was, wants to involve the international community. Both men know this move will lead to war with Jordan. Netanyahu has the U.S. and Trump in his pocket. Gantz does not, which is why he is now appealing to the international community for support. And as if on cue to answer Gantz's request, bishops from across Europe and North America called on their governments to insist on the application of international law in Israel and Palestine following their visit to the Holy Land this week. 
I dare say their appeal for international law is not the same idea Gantz has in mind, though. He wants support for violating international law. They want support for UN intervention to uphold international law in Israel and Jerusalem. Jordan's King Abdullah II warned that if Israel succeeds in imposing an unthinkable solution, as he put it, by annexing parts of the West Bank, hopes for a two-state solution, he said, and a Palestinian state would quickly come to an end. According to The National, though, the Israeli right would be only too delighted to see King Abdullah in trouble. It has long harbored a dream of engineering the destruction of Hashemite rule as a way to transform Jordan, instead of the occupied territories, into the locus of a Palestinian state. And this will catch Abdullah between a rock and a hard place. If he goes along with Israel's annexation, the Palestinians in Jordan will rise up against him. And if he sides with the Palestinians, the U.S. and Israel will oust him. Either way, Abdullah has no way out. Now, continuing on. According to Israeli analysts, the right perceives itself as at a historic crossroads. It can annex most of the West Bank and impose an unmistakable apartheid rule over a restless, rebellious Palestinian population, or it can realize its greater Israel ambitions by hoping to topple the Hashemite kingdom and encourage the West Bank's Palestinians to disperse into Jordan. All Israeli right-wingers need is a nod of approval from the White House, with Mr. Netanyahu desperate to pull a rabbit out of his hat, and with an obliging patron installed in Washington, there is reason enough for them to believe that the stars may finally be aligned. What was dubbed the Jordan Option in 1980, and was kept secret from the general population, has now been named Annexation of the Jordan Valley, and has become a mainstream topic, no longer secret. And it's become blatant. A few weeks ago, a series of anti-Jordanian articles appeared almost simultaneously in the Israeli media, targeting Jordan and revealing deep Israeli anger and hatred for the Jordanian monarch. The articles appear to be based on a single source, and they all reached the same conclusion. The Haaretz article from December 24, 2019, titled Israeli Right Wants End to Peace with Jordan, says there have been published a long list of articles by right-wing commentators, PR hacks for the government, that were published over the past month in the media. These were done by Caroline Glick in Israel Hayom, Arya Eldad in Ma'ariv, Mati Karpel in Makor, Rishon, and others, and have raised similar arguments and identical conclusions. So, the secret is finally out. The Jews hate King Abdullah as much as they hate the Palestinians living in the land.
Haaretz continues, Coincidence? Maybe. It is more reasonable to assume the similarity stems from briefings by the same official. All these articles have the same objective, blowing up the peace treaty with Jordan. It seems that annexing the Jordan Valley is a tactical move meant to kill two birds with one stone, bring, both to bring about the annexation of the West Bank and also to lead to the rescinding of the peace treaty with Jordan. The strategic goal is the overthrowing of the Hashemite royal house and fulfilling the dream of Jordan as Palestine. Well, this has been a long time coming, as I have been reporting in Beastwatch News since last August 2019, when Yahweh dropped this information right in my lap. It fits Bible prophecy to a T. Jordan has always been strategic to Yahweh's plans for his people, primarily as a place for their safety while they learn to comply with biblical Israel's federal, i.e. national or kingdom laws that govern all our behavior toward the other citizens of biblical Israel and its king, Yahweh, Yeshua. Now back to Haaretz. The racist ego of the right is outraged and angry in light of the backbone Abdullah has been demonstrating. Who is he, after all, to dare to oppose the annexation of the Jordan Valley by Israel? Israel is holding him by the balls. His continued rule depends on Israel and its benevolence. If he just dares to open his mouth about the Jordan Valley, Israel will turn off his water supply. The goal is to humiliate Abdallah, to drive him crazy until he suspends or revokes the peace agreement, and then it will be possible to act to remove him from power. The Israeli right is hoping for a Jordanian spring, an uprising by the Palestinian majority in the kingdom that will flood the streets with protests until the revolution is carried out. And let me add this comment. Any Palestinian uprising in Jordan will be at the behest of the U.S. CIA, just as the Arab Spring was that began in 2010 and continues as the war in Syria to this day. When Abdullah is expelled in disgrace and the Palestinians rule Jordan, it will be possible to complete the annexation of the West Bank and the establishment of a confederation between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Palestinian Jordan. Understand what this is saying. Expelling Abdullah needs to happen before Murad Zaran or someone else is made king or president or prime minister or whatever the U.S. and Israel intend to call their new puppet. Only then can the U.S. and Israel begin to try pushing the West Bank Palestinians out of their homes and into Jordan. I've told you this many times. This will result in the Gog War in the mountains of Israel, according to Ezekiel 38.8, and a huge mess in Jordan as well, 
when some Israeli Palestinians flee to Jordan to escape the war. The Palestinians in the West Bank will receive political rights in Jordan and not, of course, in Israel. That's the plan. Abdullah is interfering with its implementation. The peace treaty with Jordan is interfering with its implementation. So they, the Palestinians and King Abdullah, will be removed from its path. Jordan is also bothering the right on the Temple Mount. Another flood of articles in the right-wing media concerns the desire and right of Jews to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. The most minimal demand is to allow Jews free access to pray there. The maximalist demand is the demolition of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the rebuilding of the Temple. The Jordanian Waqf is in the way. They are also too proud and arrogant. Removing Temple Mount from Jordanian oversight will be the automatic outcome once Abdullah is dethroned. This must happen to pave the way for the Jews to build the altar and the Jewish temple on Temple Mount. Doing so could well involve the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, which will be a big factor in Iran's 4 plus 1 coalition invasion. And just let me say that I don't necessarily like the tone of this Haaretz article. Its cynicism betrays a lack of biblical understanding. But it certainly tells the tale about the new Jewish mindset that came about with the 2018 Jewish state law. And now let's return to that Haaretz article. The Jordanian Waqf is in the way. This is another reason to remove the person who is giving the Waqf his backing, King Abdullah, and to revoke the peace treaty that recognizes the special status and role of Jordan on the Temple Mount. In this respect, Abdullah's decision not to renew the leasing agreement for the lands of Sofar and Naharim plays into the hands of the right, and maybe that is why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did not make a particularly great effort to change it. The right wants to heat up the region, to fill it with bad blood. Overthrowing Abdullah is the key, as far as the right is concerned, to annexing the West Bank without annexing millions of Palestinians without rights. For more information on the Jordan option, you can go to my earlier reports. I have those links below. King Abdullah, for his part, has reacted to Israel's slide away from the Israel-Jordan Treaty, saying Israel has been trying to impose an unthinkable solution on the Palestinians, lamenting that hopes were fading for the two-state solution backed by the international community. He has recently lamented that the world has forsaken the two-state solution and that Israel-Jordan ties have been on hold for two years. Abdullah, who in November said that Israeli-Jordanian ties were at an all-time low, 
denounced Netanyahu's annexation pledge but refused to go into detail how Amman could respond to such a move after previously saying it would have serious consequences. There is certain rhetoric coming out of Israel because of the election politics which is creating tremendous concern for all of us in the region because they are moving way off in a direction that is completely uncharted territory for all of us and can only create more instability and miscommunications, Abdullah said. When you have certain announcements and decisions like the West Bank, it creates a lot of doubt for many of us on where our certain Israeli politicians are going. Haaretz reported on January 12, 2020, that President Donald Trump, who has been doing everything he can to break the Palestinians from the moment he entered office, is helping the Israeli right wing fulfill its annexation plans by pulling his troops out of Iraq, because we should know. Overthrowing the present regime in Jordan is an essential condition to carrying out the Israeli annexation plan. Carniel Dad wrote, After we annex Judea and Samaria, we will let the Palestinians choose. Those who want to remain peacefully, be nice, and abandon their national aspirations are invited to. Those who choose to take part in terrorism and dream about greater Palestine will be deported with their families. In other words, transfer. See how openly and casually they talk about the population transfer. Its legitimacy is so obvious in the right's eyes that there isn't even a need to justify it. And what about those who want to remain peacefully, be nice, and abandon their national aspirations? In Eldad's arrogant and colonialist words, she is aware of the danger. If we annex Judea and Samaria, we could very well find ourselves a minority in our own country. The solution? When the necessary revolution in Jordan comes, where the ruler is a Bedouin minority that rules over a Palestinian majority, the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria will vote in the elections for the parliament in Amman. Why are both... Netanyahu and Gantz now so antsy to have Trump's peace plan revealed ahead of the elections when just a couple of weeks ago neither of them wanted that. Well, it is because both candidates, Netanyahu, who is likely has known the contents of the plan all along, and Gantz, now know the contents of it and it likely contains plans to help Israel implement the Jordan option. The reason Netanyahu has been so bold as to declare the Jordan Valley annexation last year was because he already knew Trump planned a one-state solution. Now, Benny Gantz also knows this, and now that he knows this, Netanyahu can't use it as an ace in the hole for his election and giving his opponent, Gantz, the shock of his career. Trump has just played both sides, showing both men who have the best chance at being elected the peace plan cards. The Jerusalem Report 
uh, the Jerusalem Post rather reports that just two weeks ago, blue and white leader Benny Gantz stated clearly that the unveiling of the much anticipated and much delayed Trump peace plan would be a gross intervention in Israel's election. His rationale then was understandable given that the plan is likely to be extremely generous to Israel and its demands vis-a-vis the Palestinians and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would be able to present the plan as a huge success for his adroit diplomatic skills and talents. Yet on Tuesday, Gantz suddenly reversed his opposition to the presentation of Trump's plan, saying that he hopes it is unveiled and that he expects that it will happen. What explains this U-turn? The Jerusalem Post understands that the peace plan is indeed likely to be unveiled in short order, that blue and white leaders have been told as much, and that they have been given details of the plan by U.S. officials. Given that there now appears to be no doubt that the plan will be presented, there is little purpose in Gantz continuing to oppose it, since he would look foolish and out of step with a Trump administration that has been so generous to the Jewish state politically and diplomatically, and which enjoys strong support from the large majority of Israelis. Additionally, because it is likely that the plan will be advantageous toward Israel and will probably endorse the annexation of Israeli settlement blocks, Gantz and Blue and White would damage their right-wing credentials if they reject its publication or content. The party and its leader are currently taking strongly to the right on issues regarding the future of the settlements and an arrangement with the Palestinians in an effort to convince some right-wing voters to switch to blue and white and thereby end the political stalemate of the last two elections. Criticizing the Trump plan in any way would damage this strategic goal. In addition... Taking such a stance could well upset leading figures in the Trump administration, including the president himself, and being on the receiving end of a Trumpian tweet would spell electoral catastrophe for Gantz. The blue and white leader's decision to fall in line with the new schedule is therefore a good indicator that we are likely to see in the near future and before the March election the long-awaited deal of the century. Rumors of the peace plan's impending release began to spread when it was announced that Jared Kushner would travel to Israel this week. Times of Israel reported that publishing the move now could be a boost to Netanyahu, especially if it is favorable to Israel, possibly easing some of the pressure on the prime minister stemming from the attorney general's announcement that he will indict him on corruption charges. Perhaps that's the point. Trump wants to bolster Netanyahu because he would rather work with him than Gantz or anyone else. Even if Gantz knows the details and neither candidate can use secret knowledge to his advantage, Netanyahu still has the history of friendship and statesmanship with Donald Trump that Gantz lacks. 
This could appear to Israeli voters as a stronger position for Netanyahu despite all of his scandal woes, especially in the light of what Israelis surely know is coming, war with both Iran and Jordan. People often feel more secure with the man whose leadership they already know. Now let's take a look at Turkey's Sunni Shiite chess move. Not only is Israel setting itself up for war in the West Bank and with Jordan, the Shiites and Sunnis are preparing for war with each other over the Islamic Caliphate. Just weeks after the Turkish parliament approved deploying troops to western Libya, after Turkey signed a controversial Mediterranean deal with the embattled government in Tripoli, Ankara is now the central player in Libya. Fresh from the success in pushing the U.S. out of part of Syria and attacking a U.S. partner, Turkey set its sights on Libya. It recruited the same Syrian rebels it used to fight Kurds to go to Libya and fight General Haftar. Last month, phone footage of men with Syrian accents claiming to be in Tripoli surfaced on social media in which one man said, The free Syrian army is in Libya to defend Islam. The footage was questioned by many who wondered how and why Syrian men, nominally still fighting in the nine-year-old war against Assad, had ended up so far from home. Both Ankara and Tripoli have repeatedly denied the presence of Syrian fighters in Libya, as has the SNA. The Guardian understands that Syrian fighters in the country have since been banned from posting any evidence of their whereabouts to social media. Within weeks of sending them, Turkey was already discussing a ceasefire deal with Russia, but General Haftar walked out of talks in Moscow this week. There is more to this than mere politics and cozying up to Russia. Erdogan is preparing for the return of the Sunni-controlled caliphate, which is desired to have its capital in Jerusalem. Palestinian preacher Nidal Siam told an enthusiastic crowd last week at an event in Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque marking the anniversary of the 1453 CE capture of Constantinople by the Ottoman Empire that three prophecies will soon be fulfilled and expressing his hope that his audience will be the ones to fulfill them. The three prophecies, said Siam, is that a rightly guided caliphate will be established, that Jerusalem will be liberated and established as the capital of the caliphate, and that Islam will throw its neighbors to the ground and its reach will span the globe. This will not only involve overthrowing Israel from the Palestinian perspective, but also overthrowing the Shiite king of the north. This means the Sunni Palestinians are preparing for war with Israel, and they are also getting ready to fight Iran after it invades Israel.
I doubt they understand Daniel's prophecy about the end times king of the north, but they likely understand that Iran is coming and soon. The most problematic concern for the king of the north after invading Israel is what it will hear from the north, Turkey, and the east, those Sunni countries to the east of those Iran-invaded territories and east of Iran itself. Oman could be particularly important to Turkey after Israel's conquest by Iran. To this end, President Erdogan recently made a visit to Oman. The two nations have good long-standing ties. Most Omanis, about three-quarters of the country, belong to the Ibadi Muslim faith. They're not Sunnis or Shiites, meaning that they are followers of Abad Allah ibn Abad, Ibad. <laughs> but there are some Shia and Sunni Muslims there as well. But Oman is the only country in the Muslim world with an Ibadi majority population. The question then is what will Oman do when Iran attacks Israel with whom Oman also has good ties? Will it side with Iran and the Shiites or with Turkey and the Sunnis? I believe it is possible that this is at least part of the news the King of the North will hear about in Daniel 11.44. The King of the North could well hear that Turkey, who already has good relations with Oman, is making deals of protection for their brand of Islam in return for doing something. Doing what, you may be asking? Well, here is an important paragraph from AA.com with a political analysis of the fast-changing politics of the Middle East. When I read this to you, you will get it. Its exceptional location, talking about Amman, Oman rather, in the Strait of Hormuz brings Oman geostrategic value. The Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz the only way or sea lane out from the Gulf are very important spots for establishing global energy supply security. The energy security problems, which were in the background of the Iranian threats regarding the Strait of Hormuz, have been stabilized due to Oman's neutral status until today. While there is no evidence that the new sultan there, because their sultan just died a, a week or two ago, would change Oman's foreign policies, it doesn't seem very probable for him to make such an attempt either. This is mainly because the energy security problem is rather a global one, and the great powers are directly involved in it. However, Changes in softer topics might sabotage Israel's political motives. For instance, Oman's mediating role in the Palestinian conflict regressing might create unfavorable consequences for Israel. In addition, Iran's influence on Oman might increase in this new period. 
Turkey is no fan of Israel, as you know, and Israel's suffering would not be a reason for Erdogan to seek increased relations with Oman, but keeping Iran from having unfettered access in and out of the strait will be what Turkey seeks. What if Turkey were to try a military agreement with Oman like it did with Libya to tie Iran's exit and entry from and to the Persian Gulf in an attempt to stop Iran's further expansion? Given that Oman has good relations with Israel too and is likely to be shocked by Iran's sudden and brutal attack on Israel, Oman might feel vulnerable because of its strategic location at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. Now I've mentioned this before, but let me do it again. Let's go to Daniel 11 verses 44 and 45. After the king of the north's initial attack, there will be disturbances by nations to the north and east of Iran, and it's now newly conquered nations. It's not just about where Iran is located today. It's about what all Iran will own at that point after the attack. Daniel 11.44 says, But news out of the east and out of the north will trouble him, and he will go out with great fury to destroy and utterly to sweep away many. This is the web version. Why is the east mentioned first instead of the north? You know, Turkey is north of the 4 plus 1 coalition and has more military and political clout than Oman. So why is the east first to be mentioned? It's first to be mentioned because I believe it's about what Oman will decide regarding the strait with the help of Turkey's military that desires to hold Iran hostage in the Persian Gulf. This is why Iran will go forth with such fury. The place to the north of the coalition territory is Turkey, the seat of the former Sunni Ottoman Empire, and who is east of Iran's coalition territory, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. But east of Iran's newly conquered territory, meaning to the east of Saudi Arabia, are Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, and the UAE. But on Saudi Arabia's southern border, at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, sits Oman. Now, let's take a look at this. What do Afghanistan and Pakistan have in common? What threat are they to Iran? Well, Afghanistan is an Islamic republic where Islam is practiced by 85% of its citizens. As high as 90% of the population follow Sunni Islam. Pakistan also is a majority Sunni nation. And now let's look at what do Pakistan and India have in common. Well, they both are now nuclear nations, which Iran will see as a threat to itself. And, by the way, India is also a Sunni-majority nation. 
Turkey has now shown itself to be a, la- a leader of Sunni nations in the Middle East that is rising up in opposition to Iran already. Turkey's Libya move is a trap for Iran because of its recent military cooperation agreement with the Libyan government. No Turkish troops have been sent to Libya, only proxy Syrian fighters. When the time comes, though, Turkey will be required by its military agreement to fight with the overthrown Libyan government against Iran, and Turkey will need a strategic foothold in the region. That strategic foothold is the Persian Gulf. Stay tuned. I'll be right back after these messages. Thank you for listening to the Jerusalem Report on Beast Watch News. Full news coverage with a Hebraic perspective of the headlines fulfilling Bible prophecy. Remember to financially and prayerfully support Beast Watch News for keeping you up to date. Send your donation to Beast Watch News today. It takes money to operate this ministry, and your help is much appreciated. Now we're going to talk about what Iran is doing about its guerrilla warfare. Iran's continual missile lobbying now is beginning to look like a war of a thousand paper cuts. Iran could attack the U.S. with more fury than this, but it is trying to wear out the U.S.'s Ephraimite troops, as I said a couple of weeks ago. And 11 U.S. troops were injured in this past week's missile attacks. More important than a military strike, it was a serious blow to dignity, a blow to the dignity of the U.S. as a superpower. That's how Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, described recent missile strikes against bases in Iraq housing American troops during a rare Friday prayer sermon in Tehran last week. Earlier, Khamenei likened the strikes to a slap against America. While Iranian officials are no stranger to bombast and invective against the U.S., Iran's broadcasting of the missile strike and Khamenei's repeated touting of it does not neatly comport with Tehran's long-established preference for proxy warfare and deniability. In other words, It appears Iran has changed strategies. The idea behind it is to humiliate the U.S. into leaving the Middle East. And if that doesn't work, and it won't because American leaders are as hard-headed as Iranian leaders, there will be a more serious conflict. Until the strikes began on January 8th, however... 
Iran never chose to use its missile arsenal directly against America. That is why Khomeini described the operation as a game changer. The decision to do so represents a growing confidence in the accuracy of Iran's SRBM platforms, as well as in confidence that no matter the target, the strikes would not invite a, de a devastating kinetic reprisal against the Iranian homeland. This confidence requires Western analysts to revisit their assumptions about the risks Iranian security planners are willing to tolerate in times of crisis. It also requires analysts and policymakers to revisit their assumptions about the punitive and coercive value of Iran's missile arsenal and the threshold for its use. The Trump administration insists that it has no plans to withdraw, but it's become untenable for the roughly 5,200 U.S. troops to remain in Iraq, facing continuous threats from Iran and Iranian-allied Iraqi militias. The withdrawal of troops could take months and the Pentagon has started preparing for the possibility of losing access to Iraqi military bases. But this all comes with, for Iran with Russia's help. This week, it was revealed that Russia is supplying Iran with missile guidance systems that are hitting U.S. bases in the Middle East. Debka reports that the high-precision technology accounting for the astonishing accuracy of Iran's missile strike on the U.S. Ain al-Assad air base in Iraq on January 8th came from Moscow. Russian media named the technology as the GLONASS Global Navigation System, which corresponds to the American GPS and had the effect of reducing the Iranian missile's targeting error to just 10 meters. The same source, the same sources rather, report that the Iranians launched altogether 19 missiles against the Ain al-Assad base in western Iraq, of which 17 struck dead center of their targets. Depka Files military sources report that the accuracy of impact amazed U.S. and Israel intelligence, which had not been aware of this Iranian capacity. Its significance is such that, whether provided by Russia or self-made, Iran's short- and medium-range missiles can reach any point in the Middle East that is unprotected by effective anti-missile systems within a 700-kilometer radius. The U.S. and Israel haven't been paying attention, and they diminished Iran's self-reports over the last few years about its missile capabilities, these thousand paper cuts by missile strike are just Iran now playing with the U.S. and Israel like the cat playing with the mouse. Who knows what other military tech Russia is providing to Iran that will shock the U.S. and Israel. Since last spring, here's more, 
Since last spring, pilots flying through the Middle East, specifically around Syria, have noted that their GPS systems have displayed the wrong location or stopped working entirely, according to the Times of Israel report in late June 2019. So you see what I mean? We're just seeing the start of the coming tech Russia will unveil by releasing it to Iran for use against the U.S. and Israel. The signal that has been disrupting satellite navigation for planes flying through Israeli airspace in recent weeks originates inside a Russian airbase inside Syria, according to data collected by a U.S.-based researcher. This interference to the global positioning system reception does not appear to be specifically directed at Israel, but rather the Jewish state is likely collateral damage in an effort by Moscow both to protect its troops from drone attacks and to assert its dominance in the field of electronic warfare, Todd Humphreys, a professor at the University of Texas, told the Times of Israel. Israeli sources are increasingly convinced that three weeks of GPS disruptions for civilian flights are a side effect of Russian jamming and spoofing in Syria, according to Breaking Defense. Moscow is trying to interfere with both Western airplanes, including cutting-edge stealthy F-22s and F-35s, and improvised terrorist drones. It appears that the Russian jamming system still has bugs, but Russia also has disrupted GPS in Europe. The U.S. Army is planning to test jam-resistant GPS systems in Europe as a potential step toward countering Russian electronic warfare. Debka's January 13 report says Tehran will revert to its plan of assault on U.S. bases across the Middle East, starting in Iraq. Iran also debunked the idea coming out of the U.S. and Israel that Iran's first attack on the Iraq-U.S. military bases closed the account on Soleimani's death. In fact, Iran appears to be planning to replicate the Shiite militia campaign conducted 14 years ago, which harassed U.S. forces in Iraq on the move in convoys and in bases with IED roadside bombs. Another part of this plan is expected to include rocket strikes against Israel. General Amir Ali Haji Zadeh, commander to the IRGC Aerospace Force, said last week that attacking every U.S. base, killing President Trump, and killing U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper would not be sufficient to avenge the blood of slain Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani. The general who replaced Soleimani, Brigadier General Esmail Ghani, has said Iran will continue to fight the U.S. in a manly way, and also called the U.S. cowardly for the way Soleimani was killed. In fact, there is now a price on Trump's head of $3 million. Now, the media is asking 
How strong is Iran's military? Well, the answer is becoming more apparent and the information isn't pretty. If you want to see Iran's missile reach, well, here it is. A U.S. Defense Department report describes the country's missile forces as the largest in the Middle East. It's not possible to give precise figures, but the U.S.-based Center for Strategic and International Studies says Iran has thousands of missiles of more than a dozen different types. By the way, Iran will have a full nuclear program by the end of next year. Now, I'm going to finish up with the Russian threat to the U.S. and Europe. This section comes with a direct instruction from Yahweh about something I have not thought about in a long time. I was lying in bed asking him if I was done with Beast Watch News and he said I needed to go look at what Russia is doing in the Arctic. And then when I got up, he reminded me, go look at what Russia is doing in the Arctic. And then Yahweh told me to tell you that he told me to do this. Apparently, Yahweh is giving Americans and Europeans this warning, so pay attention. You know, if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you will know that I have never presented a Thus Saith Yahweh. The information I present is always from him, inspired by him. He leads me to the stories and inspires me on the, the analysis that I need to go to every week. But I have never been given a direct Thus Saith Yahweh before. So, here goes. The United States and Russia continue their confrontational stance against each other in the Arctic Circle. From the Arctic, Russia's massive number of missiles can reach the mainland of the U.S. and Europe. Practically speaking, this is really why Russia has not flexed its muscles against the U.S. in Syria, so said Yahweh. It doesn't need to. When the time is right and Russia's President Putin gets fed up with the U.S., he will strike the U.S. and her European allies. The Russian Navy has increasingly integrated Arctic components into its major rotational exercises. In 2018, the Northern Fleet dispatched ships to the Eastern Vostok exercise via the Northern Sea Route. Russia has accelerated its submarine activity in the High North, a region strongly affiliated with Russian nuclear doctrine and the bastion defense concept. Russia's Northern Sea Route Administration has tightened Moscow's grip on Arctic maritime traffic, and Russia's mid-2010s Arctic building spree, though it has recently slowed, was instrumental in helping Russia recapitalize military and dual-use Arctic infrastructure. The U.S. has one military unit operating in the Arctic, it may have a few small 
others, but this one is the most recent. A recent development in Russia should give Americans a clue about Russia's intentions. This recent development happened a couple of weeks ago, and it's your clue. This is your clue. A couple of weeks ago, Putin forced his cabinet to resign. In fact, he fired them all and made himself president of Russia for life. Why? Well, a look at who he appointed as his new prime minister will tell the tale. And this is information that Yahweh revealed to me by inspiring me to go and look for it. Russia's new prime minister, Mikhail Mushustin, who was appointed by Putin last week, vowed to shift into a higher gear with some national projects. What projects? Putin wants to pump billions of rubles into crumbling infrastructure and humanitarian services such as health care for Russians. And he also wants to pump funds into the Arctic military. He is planning to complete or build a number of gas and oil pipelines and develop shipping routes towards the Arctic, made more accessible and navigable by climate change. Now this article mentions Russia's vulnerability to flooding and other issues due to global warning, warming. rather, That may be part of the latest preparation for increased military presence in the Arctic, but it is more likely Putin wants to really tighten the noose on the West. Russia's buildup is not insignificant, says this article, with new airfields throughout the country and a new northern command which manages two Arctic brigades. This is coupled with the world's largest military base in the Arctic, Arctic anti-ship missile systems, and plans to build the world's largest icebreaker fleet. Let me read Jeremiah 51:11 to you. Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, O Russia, for his devices against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. America is as much Babylon as Israel. Washington is the daughter. Jerusalem the mother. And what have they done to his temple? Oh, they've all but destroyed it with their Kabbalah stuff. Russia's missile reach is vaster than either America or Israel understand because they are paying attention to the immediate threat to Israel from Iran. Big mistake. While everyone's attention is on the Middle East and the global goal to rule the world and own all the gas and oil, Russia has been quietly building up the Arctic Circle for the last two decades. And here is what the U.S. is doing now to, quote-unquote, keep an eye on Russia.
The 435th Contingency Response Squad was sent last November to monitor Russia's activities. They have now assessed runway surfaces, glide slopes, obstructions, and fire capes, firing capes, rather, and conducted a landing zone survey and assessment so that C-130J Super Hercules aircraft can land at the new Jan Mayen airfield in order to provide transport and resupply to the station located there and they also conducted U.S. Marine exercises there. They are on the island Jan Mayen, north of Iceland and between Greenland and Norway, the latter of which administers and supplies it with regular flights by C-130 aircraft. It has been used for centuries for whaling, hunting, and more recently, meteorological monitoring. During the Cold War, it was a base for communications and navigation systems. Though it doesn't have a usable port, its airfield can be used for research and search and rescue. And prior to this exercise, U.S. aircraft could not land on the island. The island is also above the Arctic Circle and the release noted along sea routes connecting Russia to the Atlantic Ocean. That's significant. Pay attention to that. Like Russia, China should be watched carefully. But if the United States were to react violently at this point to any Chinese actions in the Arctic, and they've been up in the Arctic for a few years now, it could be a tragic mistake. China likely has more sinister designs in the Arctic than any other country. But at this point, they should not be considered a major threat. In 2018, I th- well, first, I'm not going to say that they shouldn't be considered a major threat. They should be considered a major threat. I disagree with this article on that point. In 2018, China released its first Arctic strategy, a move which itself should raise eyebrows. China has observer status in the Arctic Council, describing itself a near-Arctic state. This is clearly nothing but rhetoric, since the Chinese border is some 900 miles from the Arctic Circle at its northernmost point. The country clearly has future plans for the Arctic, though, envisioning a sort of polar Silk Road, a goal which has already received some $100 billion. Up to this point, China has not flaunted any international laws governing Arctic affairs and has offered Arctic communities significant investment into infrastructure, Not least among these is investment into the Yamal Natural Gas Exporting Terminal in Siberia. 20% of the Yamal plant is owned by CNPC, China's national gas company, while the Chinese government's Silk Road Fund owns another 10%. Nevertheless, much of the Chinese investment in the Arctic has been blocked. Most Arctic countries are suspicious of too much investment into the territory, with the exception of Russia. 
The fear held by the U.S. and other Arctic countries is that China will eventually use its investments as an excuse to ignore or reinterpret the various laws and treaties which currently rule the Arctic. This fear is backed up by Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, where it has flaunted maritime law. This pattern is not unique to the Arctic or to the South China Sea. China is also investing heavily in Africa, where it owns about 20% of all debt. In Africa, too, the Chinese are investing billions into roads, railways, mines, and ports. That's all that big Silk Road project. The Chinese already have huge sway over African countries where there are vast natural resources. Chinese investment in the Arctic appears to be repeating this same pattern. This being said, China does not yet have a firm foothold in the Arctic. Given China's disregard, though, for the rule of law as well as their general apparent power hunger, it is in the best interest of the United States to ensure that China does not gain influence in the region. This is best done by incentivizing Arctic countries to not allow Chinese investments. Here's the crux of the matter when it comes to the Arctic Circle. When the time comes for destroying America and Europe with all of its missiles, Russia will call the shots pun intended, and China will participate in America's and Europe's destruction. Well, it is good to know the Arctic has caught the attention of the U.S. Navy and Air Force, but is it too little, too late? We may soon know. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.